Uh, my name is Jonathan Hall. Uh, I have spent uh, over a decade being fortunate enough to work with the UK's overseas territories uh, and they are a set of uh, jurisdictions and islands which I must admit have got totally under my skin for the people who I get to work with in them and the incredible environments uh, that they hold. Um, and I'm now lucky enough to be wearing two hats. So I'm working at the Environmental Funders Network to uh, support um, philanthropic giving to the UK Overseas Territories. And then I also work at the RSPB as uh, head of the UK Overseas Territories team uh, at the RSPB. Now, today, uh, delighted to have uh, a panel of speakers uh, with two uh, experienced territory funders and then two uh, preeminent conservation leaders from the territories uh, themselves. Now, today is uh, being recorded as well and will be uh, the latest uh, episode in uh, the series of podcasts uh, that the EFN are putting together under the Inspiring People series. Uh, and in a moment, the panel will all introduce themselves and their, their work and involvement in the territories. And uh, Sfina Ahmad, the director of the John Elliman Foundation, uh, will lead uh, us through a panel discussion. Um, the John Elliman Foundation will then uh, introduce uh, their very exciting work to establish a new collaborative fund for the UK Overseas Territories. Now, before I hand over uh, to the panel and we get to hear firsthand from the Falkland Islands and the Cayman Islands. I'm just going to briefly uh, set the scene for us all on uh, where the uh, overseas territories are as a whole and those places that we are uh, not getting to hear from directly today. So there are, according to the Foreign Office, 14 UK overseas territories, but often simpler to think about it as 16 overseas territories uh, spread right across uh, the globe from the tropics to the South Pole uh, and present in every major ocean basin on the planet. Uh, there are uninhabited territories such as South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands, um, more densely populated territories uh, like Gibraltar and, and a number of the Caribbean uh, territories hugely varied in size, hugely varied in uh, environmental habitats, um, but all small islands, Bath, Gibraltar and Cyprus sovereign base areas, uh, and all home of incredible wildlife and unique species. Another way of visualising them beyond uh, smaller islands on a map is when thinking about them from a marine perspective. So if you look at a a map of the world showing the, the marine estates of the planet, these, these small dots of the UK overseas territories suddenly uh, get shown in a very different light as collectively with the UK, they have the fifth largest marine estate on the planet, protecting and, and uh, being responsible for some of the, the deepest, uh, cleanest and richest parts of our world's oceans. They are particularly famous for holding 94% of our unique species. And as islands have been hotspots of evolution uh, with all sorts of unusual species uh, evolving in isolation from spiky yellow wood lice uh, to exotic fruit doves, uh, blue iguanas that no camera can do justice to the richness of their blue 
or giant orange crabs that, that live atop mountains in cloud forests. It's not just the species uh, collectively make these areas so precious, it's also the habitats. The world's largest coral atoll uh, is found in one of the UK's overseas territories. There are huge dormant volcanoes rising out of the South Atlantic, covered in albatrosses. Uh, the beautiful rainforests of the Caribbean territories uh, and then vast sub-Antarctic wildernesses such as South Georgia. But it is really the, the people um, working in these places um, which has really made me so passionate about them. So I'm delighted to hand over uh, to uh, Safina uh, and the rest of the panel to hear directly from the overseas territories. Great, thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you for sharing that overview of the work that's happening in the overseas territories. Um, so I would like to just add my welcome uh, to everyone who's joined us for today's discussion on the UK's overseas territories. I'm Safina and I'm the director of John Elliman Foundation. Uh, just briefly, for those that don't know John Elliman Foundation, we're a UK-based grant maker. We provide multi-year core funding grants to the UK registered charities that are delivering nationally significant work in the arts, social action and environment. Through our environmental funding, we make grants in the UK and the UK's overseas territories. So we started making grants in the territories maybe eight years ago. So far, we've supported 12 organisations doing work in the territories through 15 different grants. The grants made have been worth around 1.8 million pounds, and they've supported work in seven of the territories so far, primarily in the Falkland Islands, the Caribbean and Gough Island, with some grants covering more than one territory at a time. Our grants have gone mainly to medium and larger charities, um, as we do tend to fund charities with a turnover of between 100,000 and 10 million. However, we do sometimes make exceptions to this, and we have supported some very small and some very large charities too. And through our grant making in the territories, we've supported policy work as well as practical conservation efforts. And throughout all of our grants, partnerships and community empowerment have all been key features. So I joined the uh, foundation in January 2020, and it's only due to this role that I've really learned of the environmental significance of the territories. So on this panel, I am very much the only non-specialist uh, when it comes to the territories. But I am delighted that we're joined today by Annick, Esther and Hugh as specialists and passionate advocates for the work that's happening in the territories. So I'm going to be asking each of our panellists today to introduce themselves and provide us with an overview of their current role and their involvement with the territories to date. So I'm going to start with Annick. Please, can you tell us a little more about yourself? Hi, everybody. Thank you so much. I'm very delighted to be here representing the National Trust for the Cayman Islands. I am the executive director, all of nine months old. I joined late last year and we have the phenomenal mandate of protecting and preserving historic buildings and built heritage in the Cayman Islands, but also in terms of um, the development and sustainable production of some of our species, like the iconic blue iguanas, and then of course, protection of environmental portions of land that are extremely important to the ecosystem and the species in the Cayman Islands. 
Thank you so much. Right, I'm going to hand over to Esther. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, everybody. Um, thanks for having us here. Um, my name is Esther Bertram, and I'm CEO of Falklands Conservation. Um, like Annick, um, we've got a, a, a wide remit. Uh, we have um, a, a youth group um, that um, from eight to 16 year olds who uh, learn about nature. We um, work with decision makers. Um, we work right across the spectrum with a focus on um, action on the ground. So delivering conservation outcome. Um, and we'll talk more about that as we go through um, this session. Thank you. Great, thank you. And Hugh, can you introduce yourself, please? Yes, thank you, Sabrina. Delighted, Hugh Raven. Uh, I'm the chair of the John Allerman Foundation and quite a long-standing trustee there. And so I was actually a, a trustee at Element when we revived the guidelines in 2012-13 and included the UCOTS for the first time. My interest in the UCOTS, um, which I think it would be fair to say resulted in them being listed in our guidelines, came from when I worked in the Foreign Office in the late 90s when there was a white paper on the overseas territories. And for a moment, they enjoyed some prominence in the UK, partly as a consequence of the white paper, but then they faded away from public view. And uh, this endeavor is partly intended to try and make sure that they stay there for slightly longer, indeed in perpetuity in future. Uh, I'm also the chair of the Environmental Funders Network and it's a great privilege for us in EFN to be working with um, colleagues at Element, um, Safina and others, and also of course with uh, with Jonathan, uh, the great expert on the overseas territories, mainly at the RSPB, but now also part-time with EFN. Great, thanks everyone. So first question to all of you, but I'll start with Anik, if you could tell me a little bit about what inspires you most, or perhaps why, why do you leap out of bed in the morning to do the work that you do in the territories? Safina, thank you very much. I leap out of bed with great excitement because the work that we do at the National Trust for the Cayman Islands is all about legacy. Legacy. Every building we protect, every parcel of land we protect, every species, whether it's plant or animal species that we conserve, we do it because our community now can enjoy it, but because also as well, our future generations, we're holding that as custodians for them. Our chairman likes to say, he has a quote he likes to use in it. If you don't mind me sharing it, we didn't inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrowed it from our children. So with that in mind, we spend a lot of time educating and inspiring our community about what we've borrowed. And we've been very successful in work such as bringing a, a species of animal, our blue iguanas, well known as the blue dragons, from the brink of extinction as a critically endangered animal. And now everybody is able to learn more and see them. And we're working that conservation program to release more into the wild. We just launched our youth stewardship program. It's the first private public partnership in which we've educated young Caymanians between the ages of 18 and 30 on the importance of being future custodians of what we hold. And then the final thing I'll share is that we just launched a partnership it's a carbon offset program partnership, but it's in tandem with the protection of the mangrove ecosystem here in Cayman. And the mangroves, the central mangroves are 
extremely important to us. That's what protects us from, you know, certain types of natural disasters. That's what keeps our beautiful beaches, the water pristine and clear. But it's also what provides at least 40% of the rainfall in Cayman. So those are the programs and the type of work we do that gets me leaping out of bed in the morning. Great, already um, so uh, embedded in this legacy, even in nine months. So that's brilliant to hear. Thank you. And Esther, why are you so inspired by the territories and the work there? Great. Um, just to say, it's a real pleasure to be speaking to you all. Um, we're delighted that um, the EFN, EFN has brought us all together. Um, special thanks to you, Safina, um, Hugh and Jonathan, and great to be speaking with Anik. Um, one of the things that gets me out of bed in the morning is actually um, knowing that all of, of you here are also waking up as I feel that, and I hope that this will prove to be, um, you know, a real shared strategic endeavor that we're all going to be in together. Secondly, it's my very large and very, very hungry one-year-old son. But the third thing that gets me out of the bed in the morning is the wild list of the Falkland Islands. Um, and to be honest, to paint a little bit of a picture like Anik, it's the wind that hits you first here. Um, when my, my son went outside for the first time, um, he spat his dummy out with disgust at the ferocity um, of the wind as it hits you in the face. And my daughter was literally flown to <laughs> on her face on the ground. Um, and that's what it's like here. But with that wind comes, allows enormous seabirds to, um, to be able to get off, off the ground here. Um, and uh, our seas here are rich with sea life, um, which enable the Falklands to be home to, and just to give you a bit of a scale of it, um, a million albatrosses and a million penguins. It's pretty good. Um, uh, sometimes you get the pleasure of rescuing some of the, um, the young albatrosses as they come off their nests from the outlying islands and they plop into your garden. They're trying to, to get out to sea, but on their weary way out from, from the islands, um, they get caught in, in, in Falklands in Stanley. Um, but besides the seabirds, any, any visit to the coast will allow you to have an encounter with a dolphin. Um, you know, there's, you don't even need to look out very hard. Um, and at this time of the year, you get southern right whales um, cavorting and resting um, in our inshore um, kelp beds. So you don't need binoculars, um, everything's close, everything's huge, and um, it's just a, a fabulous place for wildlife. Brilliant, you've really painted a picture for us there, thank you. And Hugh, um, can I ask you why you're so inspired by working in the territories? Thank you, Safina. Yeah, well, I, I think everybody will understand the inspiration from what we've just heard from our two other contributors. I mean, that, that to me speaks far more eloquently than anything I could say. But I would just add that the, the thing that Trust and Foundations can do is um, help these amazing organisations in territory to achieve their objectives, because most of the territories have very little philanthropic, if any, philanthropic wealth within them. And I, I feel that as part of the Metropolitan UK, we have an obligation to try and look after the incredible environments that the UK is responsible for. And as a, a representative of a grant-making foundation, I've regarded it as being a huge privilege to have the opportunity to do that. So I absolutely love this work. And I would love to think that we will no longer have our solitary vigil at the 
John Elliman Foundation is the only foundation that lists the UCOTs in our guidelines. It'd be very nice to think that we could, as a result of this work and the plans that we have for the future, work with others who I think would get enormous value in terms of bang for the buck, but also in terms of inspiration out of working with the UCOTs in future. So our objective is to widen that funding uh, funnel, so to speak, going into them. And I, I'll just finish by saying that I reminded myself this morning that the first grant that Elliman made to the UK, obviously territories, was to the South Georgia Heritage Trust. And I was the one who was lucky enough to do the visit, not to South Georgia, but to the trust offices in an old juke mill in Dundee. And when I was there, the population biologists who I was talking to, one of the, as it were, interviewees, told me that if they were successful with our money in eradicating rats from South Georgia, the dividend would be 100 million seabirds. And you just got to pause when you think about that number, 100 million seabirds. And I was, I wrote it down, incredulous, took it away, contacted them again and said, did you really mean 100 million seabirds? And he confirmed that they did. So you get incredible dividends if you invest relatively small amounts of money in these incredible places. So that's what inspires me. Great example of a legacy of our funding too. So that's fantastic. Um, so the next question I'm going to ask, Esther, if I could turn to you just to um, ask you really, what do you see as the biggest environmental opportunities in your territory? Thanks, Athena. Um, great. So as some of you will know, um, it's um, the start of the UN-declared decade of, res of restoring ecosystems, um, natural habitats. Uh, this year is also a super year for the environment with two major summits, climate change and one for biodiversity. Um, so we can see that there's a lot of uh, political ambition um, and to put in place targets um, to make a difference for climate change and biodiversity. Um, and I believe the Falklands and the other territories should play an important role in achieving those targets. Um, we have in the Falkland Islands, for example, we've got globally significant peatland soils, which store vast amounts of carbon. Um, and due to the harsh weather that I described earlier, um, and we're seeing noticeable drying, uh, we're experiencing the um, impacts of historic overgrazing, so too much um, stock, um, too much livestock on the land. Um, and there's much erosion uh, being seen, which is in meaning that these peatland stores, these peatland soils are beginning to emit carbon rather than be stores for carbon. Um, and that means that large scale initiatives, restoration is needed to protect that carbon um, and to remove it from the atmosphere. We're also fortunate enough to have, um, as I described, a near pristine inshore environment um, and retaining rich kelp beds um, for that marine life, our forests under the oceans. Um, and we're experiencing a lot of interest from industrial salmon farmers, for example, uh, who are keen to benefit from those unique conditions that we have here. Um, we don't have regulation, significant regulation to be able to deal with that and safeguard these um, inshore waters. And I'm sure these, uh, the opportunities and challenges that I've just summarized um, exist in Cayman and other overseas territories. 
Thank you for that. That was really helpful to get that sense of the kind of strategic as well as the on the ground literal work that could be happening right now. Um, Annick, can you talk us through some of the biggest opportunities in your territory? Sure. And uh, we're excited about the 30 by 30 initiative, that global initiative where countries are being challenged to look at how they can protect 30% of wild areas, whether that's marine or terrestrial, by 2030. And the National Trust for the Cayman Islands, our mandate, has, is, uh, for, at least for the next five years, has been 11% in terms of the amount of land that we'd like to protect. And we've been fortunate to get to 6%, but we see so much more opportunity for us to hit that 11% and then contribute to our kind of local movement towards the 30 by 30. Um, but when we look at the land that we are protecting, we talk, I mentioned briefly about the mangroves, but we also have our um, mastic forest which, that's over 2 million years old. And um, we have other areas of forest and primary forest that we want to protect as well in Cayman. So we are optimistic about that. We are also looking at the fact that um, we have a new government that has given the mandate that they're looking at more um, sustainable development and that the environment is going to play a larger portion in um, what they want to see happen within the Cayman in terms of protections, etc. And that makes us very optimistic that we'll see more of the drive towards the protection of the environment, even from a um, government perspective. But then the other thing is that we are having a lot of calls for advocacy. It's like our community is waking up. More and more people are understanding the importance of these spaces and the need for them to be protected. And we get emails and we get social media messages saying what can we do and how can we be better advocates for this because our community recognizes the importance of, of the environment so what that does for us is that helps our mandate to educate but hopefully inspires more of a call for funding to be able to support that the work that we do um, because the work we're doing isn't just in one island but it's in all three islands Thank you. So I think we've heard from both of you there that the time to act is very much now and there is a huge amount that we can be getting on with and doing so in a way that is successful and impactful. Um, so let's turn to organisational kind of concerns or challenges that you might be facing. So if I can start with Annick again, um, what are the biggest internal and external challenges that you're facing as an organisation? Thank you. So for us, um, when we look at our population growth, it's interesting because there is a, the idea that we want to grow to, I think, 100,000 by a certain um, year. But what that does is it means there's been this boom of development and uh, there's been the fight between this idea of development and this idea of the protection of our environment and natural spaces. And at the National Trust, we feel very strongly that our voice is to say that there can be development, but it has to be sustainable development because again, we go back to what's the legacy that we're gonna leave for the children we've borrowed this land from. 
We also have to look at the fact that sometimes change is slow in terms of laws and um, the government support to get some of the things uh, moving with regards to environmental protections, etc. We have a national conservation law, um, we have a national conservation council, but sometimes these processes take can be slow. And so we see that as, you know, when we talk about renewable energy and protection of natural areas and somewhere, something that we have to kind of look at some more. We also have to recognize that the pandemic has had a huge cost on um, institutions like the National Trust for the Cayman Islands. Um, we get uh, heavy support through funding and that has declined. Locally, we recognize that we are competing with other non-governmental and non-profit organizations. And, that, and we also are a very small team and we suffered, um, you know, the loss of some of our staff uh, due to staff cuts during COVID. So that stretches us even more. Um, and then the final thing I'd like to share is that we recognize even with population growth, there are subtle threats to what we're protecting. So invasive species of our natural wildlands is a huge concern for us. And a lot of work has to be done um, against that. So, you know, you may hear things like, um, green iguanas, but it could be something as simple as dogs just roaming around that have an impact on the blue iguanas. So all of these are things that we have to consider um, when we're looking at our work here in Cayman. Gosh, plenty to be getting on with it against a backdrop of reducing staffing as well. So lots to consider and prioritise. And Esther, what about you in terms of the biggest internal and external challenges that you're facing as an organisation? Mm, yeah, where to start, hey? <laughs> Thanks, Annick. Thanks, Safina. Yeah, um, I guess the story is similar to Annick's. Um, I suppose for, for the Falklands, um, we have, how to, how to put it, we have over 750 islands here. Um, 19 of those are um, Falklands Conservation and Responsible. Internally, we're stretched. Uh, we have 15 staff covering a huge environmental remit uh, within the local government. Um, there's the capacity is almost non-existent for the environment. Um, the majority of the land is actually privately owned um, and those landowners are very wary around conservation um, and what that means in terms of restrictions to them. Um, and in terms of in, I talked a little about those industrial interests, you know, because of the richness of the resources we have here, that is a growing, a growing threat. And there is no other voice for that. It, there is only us. Um, and government are, you know, look, are wanting to look for, um, you know, to be able to commit to making um, uh, economic uh, benefits um, locally. So, we have those challenges, um, so we have a big, a big remit to deal with as well. Um, and I think all of us here, I think we, you know, I can safely say um, that we all want to make transformational change. That's the sort of change we want to make. Um, and just talking of um, for Falklands conservation, I mean, we think we know what needs to be done, um, but we're talking about decades, we're talking to make transformational change, as Annick was talking about, you know, borrowing things from, from the children. Um, it does take time. Um, 
And so many of the challenges are about making those cultural changes, um, working for us with landowners, with young people, with decision makers. That sort of change is not something that happens overnight. Um, and project funding, I mean, generally the way that we can keep going, as, as we all know, that's what we're, we're here for, is about uh, often um, sort of small, smaller scale, sort of new and sexy things, um, finding something to, you know, be able to show something over a two to three year horizon. Um, to be honest, for us, we don't need to find out a lot more. There are certain things that one does need, but um, it's about being able to do the work we need to do to make real change and that leads needs longer time horizons um, and it needs funding to support um, the underlying structures of, of organizations to be able to scale up to those sort of making transformational change um, to develop skills in people decision makers young people across the board um, and to offer people careers in the long term so um, I imagine, and I can only imagine that um, I can't speak for anyone other than myself, that but being here together, we're all interested in making large scale change um, and longer term change and recognising um, the sort of length of time um, that that needs. I think that was very well put. Um, so just following on from that a little then, Esther, can you talk me through what you've your view is of the funding landscape from for the territories. So what's your perspective of the funding landscape? Yeah, thanks, Fina. Um, so in terms of the Falkland Islands, we have a very small local population. We have less than 3000 people here. Um, so with the best will in the world, um, we can't run an organization on, on local finance. Um, so we need to look outside. Um, UK government funding um, is pretty narrow in its remit. Um, multilateral funding is closed to the UK overseas territories. Um, and for our, our situation, the territorial dispute with Argentina closes most large scale US funding routes for us as well. Um, so in fact, and just uh, uh, for an example here, um, I mean, Elliman for us was um, our first opportunity for undertaking um, key work for restoration. Um, it allowed us to look for a, you know, support a core role uh, to continue what I was talking about, that slow work of bringing people on side, that local landowners make it, you know, bringing change along with us. Um, so that sort of being able to see that that nugget of need for something core rather than a big jazzy come on do something immediately come with the impact straight away has been transformational transformational for us so um, despite the time that that's taken for um, you know as funders you to be able to see the change happening it allowed us to um, leverage some other seed um, funding from um, a so smaller scale project finance um, from a private couple, um, Spring Creek Conservation, uh, which has enabled us continue that crucial core support. So, so for us, we have a lot of limitations, and so you know those funders that are willing to come on that journey with us and look for the longer term um, has been 
really, really, um, you know, well, invaluable for us. Absolutely. I think partnership and trust is always so important in a good funding relationship. Um, and Anik, um, how does the funding landscape for the territories look from your perspective? Thank you, Safina. I have to echo, uh, you know, two things that Esther said. One is the fact that we look, we're looking at long term um, in terms of funding, because many of our programs are ongoing. They, you know, when we talk about some of our wins, they aren't just a win for now, but they, they're things we need to continue the work. Um, and then the second thing is we're also a small territory. We have a few more people um, than the Falklands. But again, while we love our local support, we recognize that, that that's not e enough for the work that needs to be done. Cayman is in a very interesting position because sometimes when people hear Cayman Islands as a territory, they don't think we need funding or you know, they see the request for funding and they raise an eyebrow because it looks quite high, not taking into consideration that the costs here in Cayman are, are quite high. Um, so things can be a lot more expensive than in even in other territories. So for us, it is always going out there and trying to help people understand why international funding and support is so important. And if I use the blue iguanas, the blue dragons as an example, um, We've been able to run that program so successfully thanks to international grants and partnerships. And, uh, you know, when we think of the work that that has done in the, in the way that now um, other people can look at that as a, con a successful conservation program on, on bringing a species back from extinction or almost extinction, um, you know, again, that shows why the international funding is, is support to help us with the research and the data um, and all of the equipment and even the teams needed to be able to do the work. Um, so the work is long-term, our local funders, we love those, but we recognize that we need more of an investment internationally. Um, and if I can reflect on what um, we heard earlier with regards from Hugh about how much exists in terms of um, the biodiversity in the territories, this call for funding becomes even more important. Absolutely. Um... I mean, in many ways, this whole conversation is a big pitch for why we should be um, supporting work, environmental work in the UK's overseas territories and supporting organisations like yours. Um, but we've still got time. So I'm going to ask in each of you, and that includes Hugh as well, um, to talk us through why environmental funders should be giving to the territories and do feel free to use ins more inspiring examples of work that you've already been doing and that's been funded um, in order to bring your pitch to life. Um, so yeah, um, I'm going to start with Esther, please, if you could talk us through why as environmental funders we should be giving to the territories. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, so as I talked about in the in the last piece, um, that was a, just a little snippet of our restoration journey, um, which, as I said, um, shows the benefits of long term commitment um, to make it change on the ground and not not giving up when it seems to take forever and nobody seems to want to, to, to change their mind. Um, so I think another example, um, as well as the restoration side that um, we've talked about, is that um, some years ago um, we became aware that the Falkland Islands um, 
was going to be starting inshore transfer. So that was oil transfer. So that meant getting oil out of the ground and then um, putting it into vessels. Um, so transferring it into different vessels and taking it away. Um, obviously, um, you don't have to work in the oil industry to know that there are real potential issues with that happening in terms of horrific oil spill potential. Um, so that just happened to be happening. The plan was to happen in one of the our fabulous wildlife areas in a nice little bit of water um, uh, to, for that to happen. Um, so we managed to piece together some support um, with some emergency core help from RSPB because uh, it was an emergency at that time um, and to try and tag that onto statutory fund funding that we'd got um, to like we're talking about try and make build build up a longer term investment um, so this allowed us to take um, to show actually what was happening in the area why it was important for wildlife um, and it turned out that um, that area was really really important for these shy um, endangered say whales spelled s-e-i um, they're fabulously difficult to follow so we started following them we started trying to take photos almost impossible to take photos hardly come out of the water um, and so um, team members um, spent time you know following them um, trying to understand a bit more about their life cycle and what they were doing here and it turned out that they were using the Falkland Islands as a nursing ground for their young, not known at all before. Um, we also managed to show um, the, the missing part of the puzzle for the more gregarious um, southern right whale. Um, I'm sure a lot of you will know um, southern right whales. They were the right whale to, to catch during the, the whaling era and people were very successful in doing so and they were nearly decimated. Um, so it turns out that once again, um, the Falklands were, uh, is uh, a key a key area for them when they come from their breeding grounds in the north. Um, that actually, um, once again, they well, we see them cavorting around here. Literally, um, it's like being in some kind of um, I don't know how to describe it. You see everything going on down here. Um, that's where they, you know they're building key relationships and um, feeding. Um, and it's so, so it might be that here is going to be a, a key calving ground for them as well, you know, where they come with their calves, lactating females, as with the say whale that we discussed. So, um, so what actually happened was that with trying to, you know, piece together, as I, I talked about, you know, that funding for being able to do some core work for us and support a wider scale project over some years, some significant number of years, we were able to actually show um, strongly enough that uh, how important our area was for whales and therefore it wasn't the best place to have an inshore transferring of oil um, and so that isn't happening for now. So um, I think that's a good news story for the moment. That's a fantastic news story and Annick over to you. Thank you. Well, Esther, first of all, I have to say that's an incredible story. So for us in the Caribbean, you know, we have this rich biodiversity and Cayman, we're just a uh, hundred square miles. We're very small, three little islands. But what is incredible about us is that um, we have within the Caribbean region, you know, one of the, the largest contiguous mangroves, uh, central mangrove system. And, you know, I hope 
our environment manager, Kathy, is okay with me saying this, but the mangroves are like our equivalent of, of the rainforest because of the amount of rainfall that's generated through it. That's what keeps our waters so clear and so beautiful. Um, that's what protects so much of, of our marine life here in Cayman. And so what we're protecting isn't just for Cayman, it, it's in the context of the Caribbean region. Another area that's very um, important for us environmentally is our mastic forest. And again, that's a dry tropical forest. And it's one of the last remaining examples of this type of forest in the Caribbean. So we are really pleased that as a, you know, such a small territory, we're able to preserve landscape from a Caribbean context. And uh, one of the things for us is that we also want to say that this is economics as well. When we look at our Caribbean territories, the protection of our environment speaks to economics. Why do I say that? The Caribbean is known as a health and wellness destination. People come to our shores to enjoy what we protect. So our marine environment, they want the colorful wildlife and marine life. They're coming for clean air. They are coming for the beaches. They're coming for intact natural habitats. And that in turn generates um, money for all of our islands uh, through the economics of tourism. And we understand that the protection of these spaces um, as in a sustainable way will help us to also preserve from an economic perspective for our country. So we are contributing to the livelihoods of so many people in our country. So what we do in the National Trust, as I, I say, is just legacy. It's the, the, the ability for people to put food on their table because we're preserving natural habitats that encourages visitation to our shores. But then it is ensuring that our future generations, those who we've borrowed from, they can enjoy it and others can come from all over the world and continue to enjoy it for years to come. So important, thank you for that. And Hugh, same question to you, please. Thank you. Well, again, what we've heard from Esther and Anik is much more important than anything that I could say, because I think the inspiring people working in the, uh, in the territories uh, uh, are the most important aspect of what we're able to do, really. We're able to support them by backing indigenous capacity so that's incredibly important as we've heard from Jonathan at the outset these are maritime places and consequently they're on the front line of the impacts of climate change and um, the effects of climate change on these islands is in some cases literally I know this is an overused word but it's apt in this occasion there it's literally existential um, some of the islands that are part of the UK's overseas territories may no longer exist in future and environmental funders surely have an obligation to take an interest in, uh, in, in something of the severity of the, the future existence of these biotopes. Um, but it's also that uh, if you look at the, the history of um, species evolution and destruction, um, I believe it's right in saying, I'm not an expert on these things, but I think it's right to say that three quarters of the extinctions of which we are aware that have happened since 1500 have been on islands. And so again, um, uh, maintaining indigenous biodiversity on islands is uh, extremely important and it's also particularly vulnerable. Um, so I think a little funding can go a very long way. And that's the point really. Our, 
dividends and conservation dividends from investing small amounts of money through these inspiring workers in the territory is an incredibly rewarding way of doing philanthropy. And I honestly could not recommend it highly enough. And forgive me if I talk about one briefly, one more invasive project, which we're uh, interested in at Element. And um, Jonathan will correct me if I've got the numbers wrong here, but I know a significant minority of the world's albatross um, live on uh, British overseas territories. Well, they live in the, in the air principally, but they nest on these areas. And uh, one of them, Gough Island, which is part of the Tristan de Cunha um, archipelago, um, has got an unfortunate invasion of house mice. Now, you don't think of house mice as being predatory, but actually they are, and they eat alive the young of the albatross, which has not evolved to be able to defend itself, even from a mouse, believe it or not. And um, uh, again, so it's an eradication project where the impact of achieving eradication, which is somewhere off, but it is thought to be achievable, the impacts in terms of global albatross populations are, are really potentially enormous. So again, back to the dividends, inspiring people, vulnerable places, huge dividends. Well, how to follow that, I think it can be said any better than Hugh has just put it. And um, we're hopeful from this conversation that we've had today that you'll have heard the way in which the territories and the NGOs working on, on the territories are delivering fantastic impactful work and that you will be inspired to consider investing in the territories yourselves through your own organisations or your own individual philanthropy. And to that end, I'm going to hand over to Hugh to tell you a little bit more about John Elliman Foundation's work on the Yukahots and what we're planning this year. Thank you very much, Safina. Well, I'm just going to repeat something that you said earlier on, which was that we've been in this game about eight years. 2014, actually, was our first grant, which was, as I mentioned, to the South Georgia Heritage Trust. And over that time, we've made nearly £2 million worth of grants. So it's just slightly short of a quarter of a million pounds a year. But we're so convinced by the value of what we've been doing in that respect and the extraordinary pipeline of projects that Jonathan and others have been working up that are ready to be funded, that we're able, as part of our 50th uh, year anniversary celebrations, we're able to allocate some more money for this year. And so we're going to be making available £800,000 for our UCOTS programme uh, in the current year, starting in September, when we're going to open for applications. And uh, between September and December, we hope to receive a good many, which we will then put through our normal processes and we'll be making decisions around the term of the year about how we're going to allocate the money and um, we would really love for others to join us in that endeavour because we do feel quite lonely um, there are one or two other uh, smaller funders that do from time to time fund in this area but none systematically and if we could use this 50th anniversary fund as an opportunity to encourage others to join us or to do it without necessarily being uh, joined up with us. I know that there are many wonderful foundations that are, are not uh, are not sentimentally joiners. They prefer to do things on their own. We respect that enormously. That's entirely appropriate if that's what works best for them. So don't necessarily do it with us. They, we'd love it if you did. And if you did do it with us, then we would really, really welcome the opportunity to, to work with other 
trusts and foundations. We know there's an enormous amount of demand in the territories and Jonathan has been working hard putting together the case for support and some of the projects that I've really merely glanced at are truly inspiring opportunities to get involved in transformational uh, conservation out in the territories. Uh, we're going to be very flexible about how we apply those funds and as we've heard already this is this year of all years is the year to get involved in this kind of thing. Of course, we're all conscious of the Conference on Biodiversity, the Convention of the Parties, a big one, the Convention of the Parties uh, on Climate Change in Glasgow in the autumn. But also we do have the um, very important biodiversity uh, conventions that are happening uh, this year, we hope, and uh, uh, also in the near future. So this really is a watershed year for funding on biodiversity as well as climate. And so please do consider whether you've got the freedom to fund in the overseas territories, because I, I really promise you, you will not be disappointed if you have that opportunity. Thank you so much. And just to add, we've been doing this for around eight years, and we're very happy to talk to anyone about the process that we've taken and the approach that we've taken. And, you know, we are set up to support UK registered charities, first and foremost, and we are still able to um, support lots of inspiring work in the overseas territories um, nevertheless so we have found lots of ways in order to um, ensure that we can continue to support work in the overseas territories. I wanted to thank Esther, Annick and Hugh for sharing um, their insights, their wisdom and inspiring us all. This was a really um, uplifting chat so thank you so much. Clearly many challenges but also a huge amount of opportunity too. Um, we can't really give you a round of applause or anything like that, but I'm sure everyone would, would be giving you a round of applause. Thank you so much.